We are continuing our study in confessional theology. This goes as a preface to our actual study of confessional apologetics. We're laying out the theology of the confession in order to understand how that it is fundamental to defending the faith of which we believe and practice in our life. It is the theology of which we build our philosophy of life upon. And so it is the subtitle to this is the concept of confessional theology as the philosophical method of revelational presuppositional apologetics. If you will, our sermon text, we have been taken out of 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. Hold fast the pattern of sound words, which you have heard from me in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And then we have in Psalm 138.2, I intended to read this last Lord's Day and did not get a chance to, but I think it's so prevalent, especially considering that we're working on the first chapter of the confession. Listen to what the psalmist says. I will worship at thy holy temple and praise the holy name for the loving kindness and for thy truth. I will worship at the holy temple, praise the holy name of God for thy loving kindness and for your truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Think about it. You have the temple of God and the worship services. You have the holy name of God being praised for his loving kindness, for giving us truth, but in particular... God has magnified his word above his name. Which really ought to be an explanation of why the word of God getting this doctrine is so important to us. Because if you don't get this right, You're going to skew all the rest of your theological thinking. You will not be able to understand the nature of the patterns of sound words. Precision. A word which was used by the Puritans and the Reformers. We must be precisionist in our theology. Sloppy theology, sloppy exegesis is not fit for the household of faith. That's why we spend so much time training our ministers. We want them to be sound. We want them to See that pattern of sound words. Understand that system of theology and how it has been birthed and brought forth in a way that when one begins to understand the nature 
of our theology, they can begin to see the practical outcomes in their life, in their family, in their community. But it is this that we don't want to forget. Thy word has been magnified above thy name. Thy word, the word of the living God. We do not come up and look at the Bible as if it is any other book. No book has the biblical inspiration that the word of God has. No book is a real living book like the word of God is. No men have ever written a book except holy men who were moved by the spirit of God. It is that excellent work where God communicates with great specificity, with a real understanding of our duty and responsibilities of being able to understand the very foundation on which we are to think and how we are to think and why we are to think that way. It touches upon all things in life. Oh, it doesn't go into the detail to explain certain things, but it touches everything because it touches all of life. And you know why? Because the Bible says that this God is the creator of heaven and earth. Thus, all of creation has the purpose of God stamped upon it as being his handiwork to bring to pass that which he intended from the beginning, the beginning to the end, and the end to the beginning, having been ordained, decreed, laid out, will not alter one iota from the plan of God. Now the perceptive will of God, which is what we talk about when we see the things the word of God commands of us, you can find the failures of many. But the discretionary will of God, that which has been decreed, that which he guarantees, even when you're driving down a dirt road, every dust particle will fall exactly where he intends. Never changes. Always comes to pass. But you see, I don't know what that is. You cannot conflate the two. You must keep them separate. But you've got to understand the pattern of sound words. We deal in the realm of the perceptive. It's like somebody saying, well, <clears throat> who are the elect? <laughs> I wish I could go and pick up the top of people's brains and just open up their cavity and look and it say stamped left. That'd be so nice. They are marked out. Believe me, they are called of God. Not just some, as the Armenian always accuses us when we say, but the word of God says many, more than man can number will stand before the throne of God. It is a lie. It is a deception when they say these things. But the perceptive will of God is understanding what he has told us and how we are to act in the word. I cannot 
deal with those things that he's decreed because I don't know them until the present becomes the past. But he gives me the word of God to say these are the standards and it measures us. It is what we can perceive in life. Because we are a part of life. We're not God's. We do not know those secret things of God that are not privy to us. And yes, 1 Corinthians is very clear, chapter 2. The Spirit of God searches all things, yea, the depth of God, and freely reveals to us those things he wants us to know. But he doesn't reveal everything. Number one, we don't have a brain big enough to wrap our mind around it. And so any questions that go along that line, well, who is this? Who is this? And it gets into that area of the decree of God in things where he doesn't tell us. Why would he love us? He doesn't say what the why is. You may not even know it when you get to heaven. If he don't reveal it to us, and don't think because we're saved and we go to heaven, we're going to become like God. And know everything. No, you're not. You're a creature. You still won't know everything. But I'll guarantee you, you won't care when you're in the presence of the glory of God. Because you'll say, blessed be the name of God. He has carried out his will. He does all things right. He does them timely. He never makes mistakes. Yea, though I do not know all the reasoning, I am satisfied because he has told me he does. I believe it. True faith is believing the propositions of God's word. Now I want to get on to this area. Gee, I didn't even set my clock and I got an extra 10 minutes on there. That's okay. Pastor Jason took five extra minutes, of which I'll take from next week from him. Kidding. (laughs) We want to go back to this chapter on the scripture. In the confession, it's entitled Of the Holy Scripture. It is chapter one. This is where we get our doctrine of Sola Scriptura. Why it's so important. The Bible alone is our standard. Now, as I go through this section and I read it to you again, I'm going to begin to, we've already looked at the meanings of what they're saying, but we're going to begin to do a running commentary now on this first section. And we may be some weeks here. Again, I've said to you, this is important. I got to drive this home. When you walk away from this, I want you to know the doctrine of God's holy scripture forward and backward and understand all of its implications to our theology. Why it is the standard by which we judge all things. Well, if you will, we're reading chapter 1 and section 1. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, the wisdom, the power of God, as to leave men excusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will, you got to know about the God who not only created but redeems, and you've got to know what his will is concerning those things that relate to man's salvation, which they say, which is necessary into salvation. 
Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church and afterwards for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same holy unto writing which maketh the holy scripture to be the most necessary those former ways of God revealing his will unto his people now being ceased. Now I want us to begin with this great doctrine of divine revelation. For all that is, is revealed. It is revelational from God. Our innate general knowledge and morality as well as that which comes from the very mouth of God to man as the means of communicating truth to man. Thus, we state that the meaning comes from a divine authoritative mind to man communicates truth to him, to his thinking. He is a reasoning, reasoning, reasoning being, which means that, as we talked about the Imago Day, he is capable of being created in the image of God to have those on a limited basis, communicable attributes, which allows man to commune with God. You understand that, what it means? We actually commune with the greatest power that incorporates all the universe because the universe exists in his thoughts, in his mind. That's what it means to speak. God doesn't actually have a mouthpiece. You can translate it. He thinks things into existence. He thinks things as they are because it is what he has decreed. So it is. He's conveying, he's communing to man his thinking or thoughts, if you will. Thy name is great, O God. Oh, the name of God is seen as being so holy. But the word lifted above the name. Thus, even general revelation must be interpreted by special revelation of God in order to claim an absolute knowledge of anything of the created order of things. Accordingly, any study of the universe without the parameters of holy scriptures will be a distortion of the truth of the creator and redeemer God of his creation, of the way of salvation in Christ Jesus and our sanctification and glorification in the life that we live until the day we pass on to our final abode with Christ to return one day, the time of the great judgment and the resurrection of the dead. And we too live with Christ forever. Well, I want to talk about scriptural annotations. That's a kind of a fancy way of saying 
These are explanatory comments, kind of a running commentary on what the doctrinal teaching is. Now, if I can, first let me point you to chapter 1 and section 1, that this section was written as what we call a justified truth, or another way of saying it is an absolute truth. Based on the revelational testimony of God himself. Theologically, we call this the self-attesting word of God. It is the self-attesting special revelation of God. Or, if you will, simply the Bible. For it is the starting point. in which these things are being dealt with. And here we've seen this. They begin their theology with the revelation of God, speaking about, one, the light of nature. These are general revelational principles. Two, the works of creation. And three, divine providence. They are known to be true in as much as they reveal because they are rightfully derived from and maintained by Scripture as valid truth claims, as seen by the very footnotes as pertaining to those things of which we speak concerning general revelation. In section 1, first You understand what I just said? Very important. What does this imply or mean as to the statement on general revelation as understood by a man concerning the design of the created order of thing, including man himself? Well, it is this. Follow it very carefully. The reason for the footnoting of this section is that we can rightly reason from the all-knowing or fully comprehensible mind of God, the omnipotent, omniscience, not of God. He's all-powerful and he's all-knowing. And he knows everything because he's the one who thought it. He's the one who brought it into existence. Thus, we have this all-knowing or fully comprehensible mind of God on these things the light of nature, the works of creation, and providence, because it is substantiated by the truth written in the scripture, which is the only validation or justification that is required in order to call something truth and therefore absolute knowledge. Why can the Westminster divines talk about general revelation? Not as speculative, they're not guessing, but they have substantial validation that these three things are true, concurrent with human nature. In other words, this are the things that God has revealed to man as a part of that general revelation, but it is absolutely true because God declares it in his word. The divine said, we derive these principles from the word of God. That makes them true. Validates the argument for the existence of these principles in general revelation. If not, you could not say with any reasonable assurity of that concept of having a truth that does not change 
kind of like science. You know, science, everybody says, oh, science is so great. Look, I'm not against science. It makes great refrigerators and cars and things like that. But science doesn't tell you why. It can't tell you the truth of the why. Science is an ongoing changing area of our study and practice in life. They rewrite the books on a regular basis as they learn more new and better concepts and things that they have not discovered before. But when it comes to the theology that God gives to man that he needs to know, it's based on an absolute word that does not change because it comes from a divine being who does not change. And so the three very things that we begin with, they're not derived from anything other than the fact that the word of God has clearly validated these things as truth. Or we can call it justified truth. That is to say, it is based on the fact that an all-knowing mind not only thought this to be true, and again, let me remind you, truth is static. It's not progressive. God, and by the way, it's progressive to us in the word, but it's not to the mind of God. God knows all things in one comprehensive thought. God's not created in the image of man. Man can only think progressively. God gives us the revelation of his mind progressively, but he knows it as one comprehensive thought. And that's to commune with us. Why? We can't wrap our little tiny brains around all that God knows. It's impossible. He thinks thoughts that are not our thoughts. But the ones that he wants us to think, he reveals to us. Thus, God's knowledge is all comprehensive. It's not progressive. Because if it was progressive, that would mean God must learn by means of mediation. It means God's got to look at it, study it. He's got to understand it. What we call me knowledge. Rather than, as we say theologically, God's knowledge is immediate because it is known to him in its fullness. God doesn't discover new truth. I got news. If you think God changes... If you think he learned something new, something he did not know, that's not the God of the Bible, and you won't trust that God. Because he may decide that the truth he sent to you in the Bible no longer is a valid truth. I've learned something new, and I've got to change it. I made the covenant wrong. Didn't need to send the son. Going to change the plan of redemption. The reason why God doesn't change his mind is because he knows all there is to know from the beginning to the end to the end to the beginning. It's not progressive thinking with God. It is fully comprehensible, omniscient thinking. Now, we'll deal with that much more later in detail. Don't want to lose you. I'm just trying to bring you along with me on this. But yet, God has revealed it to man. And he has preserved it through holy men. Think about it. If what God knows is truth, and what if he wants to know us to know is that truth, that absolute truth. The truth 
Truth is truth because one of the characteristics of truth is it never changes. It can't. It fulfills all the laws of logic. But those are only arguments. They're always consistent. But it's true because God thought it so. He thinks it that way. And then he preserved the truth that he reveals to men over a long period of time. Who were moved by what? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit moved men to write what the Godhead wanted us to know. Especially concerning the light of nature, the work of creation, and divine providence. And he preserved it in what we call the Holy Scripture, the Word of God, the Bible, the Word written, the Holy Writ, the Holy Script, whatever name you want to append to it, which would be rightfully identified. He preserved it. And he has a reason for that. And I'm going to talk about that when we get to that section but we're not going to be dealing with it today. But I want you to just keep that in mind. How important it is for man to know the truth, the absolute truth, the only verifiable, valid knowledge that man can count upon. Man's mind can change. Men's mind will change. But God's mind never changes. And it is his mind that he's revealing those truths to us. Do you really get the depth of that? God is exposing a certain part of his knowledge, his mind, to you. You can never look at the Bible in the same way again. It's not a book we bring to church because, oh, we've been taught this is a good thing. You are carrying with you the very word of the living God. It tells you of that God, of everything you need to know about him. That triune God. And it tells you everything you need to know about man's salvation, life, and application. And thus, it becomes so important that we talk about that written word. Light of nature, quirks of creation, providence. These are truth claims that are alone justified by that word. We call it justified truth or absolute truth because it can be proven and supported by the written word of God. It is the word alone. I remind you that it's been lifted up. It's been magnified above his own name. Begin to see why. What good does it to say the name of God and praise it when you don't know the truth of it. You don't know the meaning behind it or the purpose of him who goes by that name. The word God can be found in any religion of the world. But our God is known by his own revealing and testifying of himself in the written. The word alone is lifted up. Nothing's higher than the word. You get that? That's the proclamation that God gives us in his word. 
not the name of God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. You get that part? Even that is defined by the word. The word left it out. Not the so-called gifts of the Spirit. Not man or the church. No apostle, prophet, or any other officers that exist today. Minister, elder, deacon. Well, the majority of the church. The church does not supplant the word of God. doesn't matter whether it is in the aspects of the way the Roman Catholic Church defines themselves as being the ones who put together the word of God. And they were not the one who brought forth the word. God brought forth the word. Yes, the church canonically determined what were those texts that were acceptable. But again, that was done through the providential work of his Holy Spirit. Who wrote the word? Who gave evidence to them? The spirit bearing witness with their spirit. What was the word of the written, uh, that has been written by the Holy Spirit of God? There is nothing lifted higher than the name of that word, the Bible. That word to us. Thus, consider the real nature and proof for the light of nature, works of creation, divine providence. As the Westminster divines wrote, drawing from the principle of biblical authority, this is the truth. This is the justifiable truth. This is the validating truth. This is the absolute truth does not change. It is the final justification of all things that are true. And that truth is what God reveals only, can only be declared by special revelation. Therein we find in chapter 1 of section 1 that such claims are true because the word of God teaches us that they are because. I will use a phrase from my beloved professor of philosophy, Dr. Clark, because God thinks these things so. That is simply why they are so. For no other reason. You don't need a reason. If God thinks them true, they're true. That settles it. You remember that little model they used to use years ago? Some of you were never born back when they used this. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. It doesn't matter whether you agree with it or not. God said it, it settled. God has revealed in his word, that settles it. This is what God thinks. And therefore, it is so. It is the truth. It is the only truth that can say it never changes. Because there's nothing new for God to learn. He knows all things in one comprehensive thought. And therefore, there's no need for additional truth. Nor would there be a use for additional truth? The only thing you could do in making a secondary truth claim is create confusion. So very important. I want you to get this. Thus, we would rightfully conclude That according to the Holy Scripture, that the so-called evidence of these things, the light of nature, works of creation, and providence, are not based on an empirical, that is, an examination of the physical things of the universe, or some rational argument derived from logic alone, 
an argument developed by man about the created physical reality, but rather from God revealing his mind to man through the special revelation of Holy Scripture. And by that, we mean the Scripture alone. Now, listen to the biblical, rational explanation of God's word that is used to support these claims in this first section. I told you I'm going to beat you to death with this thing. And I'm not going to quit till you got it and understand it. And I may even make you stand up and explain it to me. I'm just kidding. <laughs> we wouldn't do that. I really want you to get this. This is how important it is. This is the difference between life and death. These are eternal things. Now, they use these scriptures. Psalm 19, 1 through 3. This is the perfect revelation of the Lord to the chief musician, a psalm of David. Verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiworks. Ah, special revelation says these things do do these things. We can know that there's certain things that are being manifested here. Verse 2. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. Then verse 3. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. And you say, wow, that's quite interesting. What should we take from this passage? Well, I want to quote John Calvin to you. Forgive me, it, it's a, I've tried to shorten the quote down, but his explanation is very precise and I believe clear. This is what Calvin says. <clears throat> This psalm consists of two parts. In the first of which David celebrates the glory of God as manifested in his works. So he is celebrating God who is manifested in his works. He hath in the works the very fingerprints, we would say, of God. And in, other, in the other, he exalts and magnifies the knowledge of God, which shines forth more clearly in his word. So there's two things being taught here. One, creation is a celebration because of that which we see in the universe. That gives testimony. How much testimony? It doesn't say. It does tell us it's enough to hold him accountable. But it doesn't tell us how much it says. But Calvin says, but what is important to know, there is a second part to this section of Scripture, which exalts and magnifies the knowledge of God, which shines forth more clearly in his word, in the word, in the word spoken, in the word preached. He makes mention of the heavens, but under this part of creation, which is the noblest, and the excellency of which is more conspicuous, meaning obvious. He doubtless includes by synecdoche the whole fabric of the world. In other words, the idea is compared to the reality, and in that way, it's a synecdoche. Thus, when he speaks of this, he's really declaring the whole of creation, not just the part, the whole. Calvin goes on to state, there is certainly nothing so obscure are contemplatable even in the smallest corners of the earth, in which some marks of the power 
and wisdom of God may not be seen. So we know that it's the power of God and it's the wisdom of God that is being manifest in these objects. When a man from beholding and contemplating the heavens has been brought to acknowledge God, Calvin's saying when a man considers these things having been brought what? To acknowledge God, not from the universe. If that could be done, you wouldn't need Christ and salvation. So get it right. Man has been brought to the knowledge of God, and when he contemplates these things, he cannot but help see them. He will learn also to reflect upon and to admire his wisdom and power as displayed on the face of the earth. Not only in general, but even in the minutest plants. Calvin goes on. The repetition which he makes in the second clause is merely an explanation of the first. David shows how it is that the heavens proclaim to us the glory of God, namely by openly bearing testimony that they have not been put together by chance. Oh, what they're telling us is there's no such thing as chance, chaos. Now, you and I, in a modern day setting, would say there's no such thing as evolution. One thing happens, another thing, it's all by chance. That some pattern out of chaos comes, this process does not happen. But, he says, were wonderfully created by the supreme architect. Now we can see that. He says, when we behold the heavens, we cannot but be elevated by the contemplation of them to him who is their great creator. Now he's already said, when a man comes to the knowledge of God, we've seen the knowledge of God as that which is revealed to man. Special revelation. And so when a man, through special revelation, comes to a true knowledge of God, of course he cannot see anything in the created order of things that does not speak of the divine architect, the creator God. Now Calvin says, and the beautiful arrangement and wonderful variety which distinguishes the courses and station of the heavenly bodies together with the beauty and splendor which are manifest in them cannot be furnished us with an evident proof of his providence. Thus, we see the providence of God in the way these things work. The power and the wisdom of God being manifest. Scripture indeed, says Calvin, makes known to us the time and manner of the creation. But yet the heavens themselves, although God should say nothing on the subject, proclaim loudly and distinctly enough that they have been fashioned by his hands. There is enough that is being demonstrated in the universe itself that it is impossible not to have some sense of the great power that controls the whole of creation. But it's still not sufficient to give that knowledge of God, nor of salvation, in order to save man. Now Calvin is stating that the testimony of the created order of things is seen in the pattern of a rational orderliness. That's what he's talking about. 
ordinance to the heavens, which manifest the divine providence and wisdom of which evolution could never manifest concerning the origin of man and the development of all things in a world out of chaos. Calvin said, that's impossible. That cannot be done. To the believer, the world is rightly seen in the fullest meaning of the teaching of Scripture. But even if no words were added, they bear a witness to the works of God's hands, which have no other plausible explanation that which may be drawn from them, and it is sufficient to make them accountable to God's judgment because of it. They testify against man all the time. Very important. The actual reality of the world as it exists cannot be explained by anything other than the truth of the creator who holds all things together, the Bible says, by the power of his word. Science, quote-unquote, evolution says one thing, and the earth goes on to do something different. You know why? Because the truth of what the world is doing is according to the very precepts of God to decree, and science can't understand it. Because even in that case, not the how things work, but the why they work, and for the purpose that they work, he cannot understand it because even Creation is what? The truth of it is spiritually discerned. Well, then they go on. And I'm going to try to get through a part of this. In Romans 1, 19 through 20. They use a passage dealing with innate knowledge. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, which means deity, so that they are without excuse. Well, how much? I don't know. I know this. It's enough to hold them without excuse. Well, how much does that require? I don't know. How much faith do you have to have? It has to be a certain amount of faith. You've got to have a knowledge of God and of his way of salvation and of the way that he expects for us as a Christian to live in our life, etc. Those things must be elements. Why is Jesus son of the living God? Why is he the right propitiation for sin. you got to know some of these things, some of that. It's more than just saying, won't you believe in Jesus? Oh, yeah, okay. Who is Jesus? Why is he the Redeemer? What has he accomplished on the cross? That don't mean you got to teach him all the theology that's necessary, but a certain amount of knowledge is being required. How much knowledge here is given? I don't know. I just know this. It's enough, he says, to hold them without excuse. Now, there are something which clearly can not be known about God by the light of nature. The light of nature, by the way, is talking about the inward aspect of knowledge of God as we are created in his image, the Imago Dei, okay? Let me tell you what we can't know by the light of nature. We can't know the trinity of the persons in the Godhead. We cannot know the nature and being of God as he actually exists. 
We cannot know whether he is infinite or a finite being. We cannot know is God Holy Spiritual or is there a corporeal aspect to him or is he totally corporeal or a combination? We don't know. You can't know from the light of nature. Is there only one God or many gods? We don't know. The light of nature does not teach us that. We do not know the knowledge of God in Christ as our necessary mediator to bring us in a right relationship to God through his atoning work. Seventh, we cannot know about the God-man, the mediator, Jesus Christ. We don't understand any aspect of that hypostatic union. How is God both God and man, holy God, holy man? We don't know. It's not revealed in the light of nature. Nor is the purpose of Christ's incarnation told in the light of nature. Nor can we understand from the light of nature anything concerning Christ's sufferings, his state of humiliation and the state of exaltation. Tenth, we cannot know the nature of Christ's death, the purpose of the atonement, and his physical resurrection. That's not in the light of nature either. Eleventh, we cannot know the ministry of Christ and the will of God in the telos of the Father's purposes of all things. You can't know that? Twelve, you cannot know the will of God to save sinners by a crucified Christ. Exactly what's the purpose in that and how is it being done? Thirteen, you cannot know all of those various doctrinal aspects of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Doesn't reveal that. Fourteenth, you cannot know the manner of worshiping the true God with acceptance. Not with what you want and how you want to worship him, but what he requires of you to successfully worship him. I don't know about you, but that's a lot of things the light of nature doesn't teach you. And yet, there's enough in the light of nature that holds you accountable to God. Well, there are some things which may be known of God without special revelation in the general revelation. But without special revelation, you don't understand the specifics of these various things. But what does the light of nature teach us? First, Adam had a non-sinful knowledge of God. We know that. By both general and special revelation prior to the fall in the garden. Not only did he know what it meant being created in the image of God when God said to him, don't eat, because in the day you do, you will die. He understood that terminology. But he also walked with God in the midst of the garden in the evening. And they had communion. Secondly, we can know that his posterity, the fallen, have some notion of a sense of deity, even after the fall. Now, understand, I'm speaking to you from Scripture, but the Scripture is affirming. All of Adam's posterity still retained a sense of the, the ascensions of the imago, imago Dei, excuse me, I get my new teeth in six weeks. I'll be excited to get out of these things. It's like a restraint. But we all have the image of God, even though it's been corrupted. Yet there is enough, yet that we have a sense of deity. We'll talk about more about that later. And then we're told, Or we know that there is a God or deity, and by the light of nature it may be known that there is a divine being, and that the works of creation and providence demonstrate that he is the most powerful, 
good and wise God, for this is manifest in them or to them by the light that is given them. It is a light by which that which may be known of God is manifest. And this is the light of nature, which every man has that comes into the world. The internal, that which is internal to man. It is in man. It is in his mind. It's in his conscience. And is communicated through minimal or limited general pop propositions because we're created to be a thinking being. We are created and given the proposition God intends for us to have or how to put propositions together, if you will, which are innate to man by God, which in essence really constitutes what? The Imago Dei, the image of God in man, or man as the image of God, more rightfully stated. For that which may be known, what may be known of God by that light, and which is assisted and may be improved by a consideration of the works of creation and providence, which doth manifest the creative handiwork of God in creation. And in that way convey a limited but yet corrupted knowledge which holds us accountable. Job 32.8 says, But there is a spirit in man, and the breath of the Almighty gives him understanding. Man, created in the image of God, has some aspect as a thinking, rational being. But he is flawed from sin. But even in the garden, we know Adam could not derive what was required for him to live, to be obedient to God without giving, being given a command by God. So general revelation just doesn't cover it all. Some knowledge. How much? Don't know. But I know this. It's going to hold you accountable. And so it is. <coughs> and I'll end there today. That this knowledge that God has given by the light of nature, we as a rational thinking being endued with knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, we're able to perceive, but it has limitations. And yet requires us to be without excuse. Enough we are without excuse. Do you understand that? How important that is in this doctrine? I hope you see why you need, you must have special revelation. Because general revelation will not cut it. Oh, you'll have enough knowledge to hold you accountable, but not enough to reveal that knowledge of God that is necessary and of his will concerning the way of salvation. Man, the word of God. Even manifested higher, lifted higher than the very name of God. How important. This is what the Westminster Divines are laying out. How important is this doctrine of the word? Why must, must it be first? Why must it precede all other doctrine? Because the only validated or justifiable knowledge, the only absolute truth that you can have be based on the revelation of God's mind to man through 
special revelation. His speaking, giving visions and dreams, whatever form of communication that it be, as holy men are moved by the Spirit of God, he reveals what God wanted us to know. All that is sufficient to be known has been revealed. That's why you can't question it, because if you do, you're saying it wasn't sufficient. And even if you say, well, I don't mean it's not sufficient, you can't say it and then say, I'm going to add something to it, or I've got a new revelation, or I've got a, something to add to it, or something that's not in the Bible, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. But the question becomes, if it's not the word, but if the word is sufficient, and it's the Spirit of God that's given you this, why didn't he put it in the word? How would you measure that truth? Oh, by the word. Well, then why'd you need the extra revelation? Because see, all of a sudden you got two systems of truth. And that's a logical contradiction. One will be right and one will be wrong. They both can't be right, but they both could be wrong. You can never come to the truth with two systems of truth. So it's very important. Think through this. I'm going to spend some weeks here. I'm going to hit this. I'm going to hit it over again. I'm going to rehash it. I am going to pound this into your head. That's how important I believe this first doctrine is for us. We're going to be here for a while. But it's foundation. If I was writing a chapter on this, it would be called No Other Foundation. None is sufficient. But the truth of God's special revelation given to man. Absolute truth. Never changes. Fully sufficient to everything we need. Never look at your Bible in the same way again. You're not holding a book holding the very thoughts of an omniscient God. Shall we pray?